Hello, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. I'm your host, Sandy, and I have a little bit of a cold. I'm getting over it. Um, so hopefully you won't hear my nasally congestion too much. I haven't done a Twisted Travel case in quite a while, so I'm going to rectify that today. I hope you enjoy it. Longtime listeners know I haven't said welcome aboard for a while now because I'm living on land, but part of today's case takes place on a boat in the North Sea, so it feels nice to be able to say it again. Let's not waste any time and dive right into today's episode. In September 2012, Chris Lemons and his fiancée Morag were looking forward to their upcoming wedding and the finishing of the remodeling of their home. When they were together, it was important to them that they get as much quality time as they could. This was because Chris's job would take them away for a month at a time. He was a saturation diver and worked on the North Sea. His job is a very dangerous one, and I'll tell you why, but first let me tell you a little bit about where this story takes place. The North Sea is part of the Atlantic Ocean. It kind of sits between Great Britain, Norway, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. Twenty years ago, it was one of the richest sources of oil in the world. Oil rigs dot the seafloor all around the North Sea. The skeletons of these rigs have become home to many types of marine life. Although several aren't in use anymore, there are plenty more that are still pumping oil today. Chris's primary job was to repair and maintain parts of the oil rigs that lay deep under the sea. When Chris and his fiancée were apart, they would take short videos, which would be sent back and forth, allowing them to still enjoy a piece of each other's lives. For example, Morag would take videos of the animals being born on their small farm, and Chris would take her on tours of his tiny little encapsulated living quarters. When he was gone, he would spend 28 days at a time, locked into what he called saturation chambers, or he would be diving at deep depths under the sea. In order to understand the story better, I have to tell you a little bit about how deep diving works, specifically saturation diving, especially for those who've never heard of it before. I never had, and I learned a lot during this research and loved every minute of it. So saturation diving is one of the most amazing types of commercial diving. It requires the most experienced and confident divers. These divers are put under strenuous conditions and live under literal pressure for days at a time. In a typical diving situation, or what most of us think of as scuba diving, a diver returns to the surface to normalize pressure after taking a deep dive. So that means they return to the surface slowly, and it lets their bodies adjust as they ascend. At depths of several hundred feet, it's impossible for divers to come back up to decompress because they would run out of oxygen. It would simply take too long. So saturation diving was invented. As a saturation diver, you could be submerged in a small pressurized chamber for up to 28 days. It's pressurized to the same level as the underwater environment that you would be required to work in each day. This way, you wouldn't have to decompress after each shift. I describe it as kind of a specialized tiny work home, or in a way living in a little yellow submarine, except you're at the surface on a ship, but it feels like you're down deep in the ocean. When divers go from the pressurized chambers to depth, where they'll be working, they're carried in what's called a diving bell, which is also pressurized. On a typical dive boat, there are three or four capsules that people are living in, and each capsule will hold two or three divers. The divers will be assigned to work a six to eight hour shift every day. 
When a saturation diver reports to work, he or she finds out who they'll be encapsulated with. All the divers want to be enclosed with people that they get along with and who they respect and who are competent at their job. The capsules are very tight quarters and the divers can't come out until their 28 days are up. They can't get away from each other and have to make the best of their forced time together. The capsules are small. Some are only 20 feet long and 7 feet in diameter. This is where the divers will eat, sleep, work, and try hard not to think about the fact that any unintended breach of this temporary metal home would mean a fast, agonizing death. These brave people will make somewhere between thirty and $45,000 per month while they dive. It sounds great, doesn't it? Except for the fact that your life is constantly in danger the entire time you're under pressure. When diving down to depths of sometimes a thousand feet or more below the surface of the ocean, these divers have to breathe this pressurized air. The air is usually a mix of hydrogen and nitrogen, or helium, and it dissolves benignly into our blood and tissues as long as the weight of the water surrounding the diver keeps them compressed, or that their compression chambers keep them compressed. But when a diver returns to the surface, the gas needs time to diffuse slowly out of the diver's body. If this doesn't happen, if a diver were to shoot straight to the surface, the dissolved gas would form into bubbles, like a can of soda inside the body. It would be as if there were millions of tiny explosions beginning to detonate. This is known as the bends, or getting decompression sickness. This condition can be catastrophically painful and debilitating, and if the diver is rising from deep water, it's nearly impossible to survive. The deeper the depth, the more time needed to decompress. Diving to 250 feet for an hour, for example, would require a five-hour ascent to avoid getting the bends. The world needs divers who can go to the seabed to perform the delicate maneuvers required to put together, maintain, and disassemble these offshore wells, rigs, and pipelines. Remotely operated vehicles don't have the touch, maneuverability, or judgment for the job. So a solution was made, and in the 1930s, an experiment showed that after a certain time at pressure, a body can be fully saturated with gas, which means that that person can remain at pressure indefinitely as long as they have that long decompression at the end. So Chris starts his job by leaving the land and stepping onto a flat-bottom ship known as a DSV, or Dive Support Vehicle. Every piece of equipment on that ship is there to support the work and the lives of the divers. There are captains, seabed managers, dive supervisors, life support supervisors, life support technicians, and assistant life support technicians. They control what the divers breathe and eat, as well as supplying personal necessities, and even remotely controlling things such as toilets and showers. Everything is closely videoed and monitored, including shower and bathroom time. There's no way for a diver to sneak a fart without somebody finding out. Before divers are allowed to work, they are closely monitored for signs of infection. Even a simple cold could be incredibly hazardous to a saturation diver. Clogged ears and trapped sinus air could mean that the divers might not be able to equalize under pressure, and this could cause permanent physical damage and end a career. When it's time to enter the capsules, the divers pass through a tight circular hatch, it looks like what you would imagine on an old submarine, a circular door that closes and seals. Even though the divers are on a boat just a couple feet away from support crew and fresh air, 
the divers might as well be on an international space station. This means that once the divers have been pressurized, if anything goes wrong, it would take several days before they can get help. If someone breaks a leg or has a heart attack or finds out about a family emergency, there's nothing that can be done until the divers have been safely decompressed. Some of the nicer and larger encapsulated facilities include things like a sauna to warm the divers up in after swimming in freezing cold water all day. Some even include a tanning bed to get some simulated sunlight. Even with these amenities, there's no way these capsules could be called spacious. If you're the littlest bit claustrophobic, this is not the job for you. Let's not forget that these capsules are on a boat that's being tossed around in the sea for a month at a time. Even though I loved living on a boat, I still get seasick. I prefer calm anchorages. 28 days of bouncing around at sea sounds pretty miserable to me. When Chris went to work on September 18, 2012, he found out he would be enclosed with two men, one named David Uaska, Uasa, Uasa, and another named Duncan Milcock. He was happy because he got along well with both men. Dave was described as cool, calm, and logical. He didn't get stressed easy. Some of his friends described him as the Vulcan. I guess this is a Star Wars reference that I don't understand because I hate to admit it, I've never seen the movies, so... Sorry to everybody, I've just offended by my ignorance just now. The other diver, Duncan, was called a sat daddy because he was a very experienced diver. Chris was the least experienced of the group, but he'd done several dives with Duncan in the past. Duncan and Chris got along really well, and although Dave had never dove with Chris, Dave trusted Duncan's opinion, so he knew the three of them would get along well. The men crawled through narrow tunnels into their chambers, and prepared to be pressurized. They call this process the blowdown. The gases enter the chambers, and the men check for leaks. The dive that they were preparing to do was at a depth of about 100 meters, or 300 feet. The gas that was being blown in was a mixture of helium and oxygen. The men began speaking like Mickey Mouse, and squeaky voices would become the norm for the next 28 days. Living in the small quarters can be quite intense, and everybody copes with these stressors in different ways. Some exercise or meditate, while others read or watch movies to relax between dives. The diving itself is demanding physical work. When it's time to dive, the diver gets suited up in what looks like a space suit, and attached to their suit is a long, thick cord. It's about the diameter of a softball. This cord is aptly named the umbilical because it keeps the divers alive. It pumps air to them. It pumps warm water through their suits to keep them from freezing. Um, it also keeps the divers physically tethered to the bell. And at the end of the day, the divers will pull themselves back along the cord in order to find their way back to the bell and then be transported to the boat. On that day in September, the boat was motoring over the North Sea oil fields. The men had begun to feel excited to enter the diving bell and begin the day's work. Once they were deep enough underwater, they didn't feel the tossing of the waves anymore, just a calm, still, deep sea. A man named Craig Frederick was the dive supervisor that day. The divers have to follow his directions to the T. He tells them step by step how the dive will progress. He also ensures that everything goes smoothly so the divers are safe. He can sort of monitor the men and see what they're doing through cameras on their uh, masks, and he can tell them what he needs to do in order to make repairs as well. 
So Duncan would be staying inside the diving bell that day. He would make sure the bell was working properly and he'd help support the two divers, who would be Dave and Chris. All three men enter the bell and are slowly lowered from the surface of the ocean down to the ocean floor. This process takes about 30 minutes. In that time, Duncan helped Chris and Dave put their helmets on properly and prepared them for exiting the bell. Both men were feeling cool and calm and ready for work. They entered the freezing cold, pitch-black water. The only light came from inside the bell, and the lights attached to the men's diving suits. The lights on the suits were also powered by the umbilical, and it provided them the opportunity to communicate. So as you can tell, it's of the utmost importance that these umbilicals be cared for properly. So the men drop to the seafloor, and they make their way to the nearest oil rig. If the visibility is poor, they might not even see the ground before they hit it with their feet. It's really easy to get lost, and on some days, the most challenging part of the job is finding the oil rig that the men are required to work on that day. The dive supervisor remotely monitors the breathing of the divers, and he notes that in the first 10 minutes, it's usually the most stressful part of the dive because the divers' bodies have to adapt to the temperature and psychologically to the darkness and the change in environment. That day's job was to remove a piece of piping from the oil rig and replace it with a new piece. The dive supervisor monitors the dive, making sure the men are doing what needs to be done, while Duncan's inside the bell waiting patiently for the divers to return. The work was pretty routine, and it was something that Chris and Dave had performed before, so they got straight to work. According to Morag, Christopher came into diving later in his life, but it was something he was extremely interested in. She supported him because she knew he loved it, and he was passionate about his job. She knew there were plenty of dangers, but Chris reassured her that he would be fine, and there were plenty of safety measures in place. The weather on the surface, where the boat was, wasn't very good. The boat was facing 35 knots of wind and 18-foot swells. The men were on the limiting edge of allowable diving conditions that day, but they were still within allowable parameters for their safety. This meant, obviously, that the boat was getting tossed around, but the crew had experienced worse. Suddenly, an alarm goes off, and then a second and a third. The boat, which is specifically designed to stay stable and in one place over a dive site and divers, begins to move. They have something called a dynamic positioning system, which keeps them in place, but it failed. This was a full-on emergency. The dive supervisor immediately orders the divers out of the structure. They should return to the bell as quickly as possible. Dave and Chris are doing exactly what they are told, so they're racing to get out of the structure. They can, they can hear the tenseness in uh, the dive supervisor's voice. So they're doing what they're told. They're moving, and the boat begins to pick up speed. It's moving faster with the winds and waves, and it's drifting further away from where it's supposed to be. The divers are trying to follow their umbilicals to the bell, but because the ship was moving and it couldn't be controlled, it meant that the bell was moving. And really, at this point, the divers had no control, but they didn't know it yet because the bell hadn't begun to pull on them. When the two divers exited the structure, they expected the bell to be right in front of them and a little bit over their heads, but it was missing. They looked at their umbilicals and they saw that they were stretched backwards behind the divers, 
which meant that the underwater structure was now between the divers and the bell. They quickly tried to follow their umbilicals, which went up and over the, the structure, so they began to climb up it. But Dave noticed that Chris wasn't keeping up. He wasn't making forward progress, and it was at this point that Dave knew something was really wrong. Chris's umbilical had wrapped around something that was protruding from the structure. The umbilical had to be untangled in order for Chris to move. Chris was heard asking for slack from the bell. He needed his umbilical to be loosened, but the bell couldn't respond. It was getting pulled by the ship. Instead, the line got tighter. The umbilical cord was jammed. The large ship floating above them was being pushed by 35 knots of wind, and at this point, Chris and his umbilical were acting as an anchor. At that moment, there was no scenario that was going to let Chris free. Video from inside the bell shows Chris's umbilical beginning to rip the stainless steel umbilical rack off the wall of the bell. So this would have been something that they wrapped the umbilical on, and at the end of it, the, the inside part, was pulling off of the wall of the bell. Duncan expected it to be ripped off the wall and pulled through the floor of the bell and had to move out of the way so he wouldn't be caught in between. On the seafloor, Dave was trying to make his way to Chris to help him. They were about six feet apart and they could see each other through their helmets. Chris was in trouble, but Dave realized that he was at the end of his umbilical cord. There was no way he could reach Chris. Their eyes locked. Chris's umbilical was creaking and stretching. They could hear popping sounds under the water. Suddenly, Dave was being pulled backwards. As Dave was being pulled away from Chris, he felt like he was watching a movie. He could hear the sounds of Chris's umbilical cord breaking, cord by cord. Then suddenly there was darkness. There was no way for Dave to help Chris. He was being pulled backwards, and Chris's helmet had gone dark. Dave turned around and started following his umbilical back to the bell. There was a lot of resistance because he was being pulled through the water. Dave didn't remember fearing for Chris. In that moment, his priority was his own safety, as it should have been. He was worried that he might run into another structure, and if he got caught, it would make the situation even worse. Back on the bell, Duncan was pulling on Chris's umbilical, hoping that he was attached to it. But in his heart of hearts, he knew that wasn't the case. As he pulled the umbilical cord in, the first broken piece that came through the bottom of the bell was the hot water hose. Next was the broken gas hose. It was loud and it was blowing gas. It felt unreal and terrible to Duncan to have to reach up and turn the gas hose off. This was something no one ever did when a diver was still in the water. He felt as though he was letting Chris down as he turned the valve off. All he could do was shout, I've lost my diver, I've lost my diver, and then pull himself back together because he had another diver in the water who might be needing his help. Dave pulled himself back to the staging area, which was placed right underneath the bell. It's kind of like a platform that hangs down from the bell and it's, it's in the water. He stood there hanging on and waiting trying to figure out what was going to happen next. Dave knew he was helplessly moving away from Chris. Chris, who was deprived of air from his umbilical, now only had what the divers call bailout bottles. 
These are two small bottles containing a mix of gases. They would provide Chris with only five to ten minutes worth of breathable air. That's it. Now he was exposed to the ice-cold water as well. He didn't have any hot water to keep him warm. Time was critical. There was no option for him to swim to the surface, which was only 300 feet away. If he did, he would die. Back on the ship, everyone gathered, trying to brainstorm how to get the controls back. The other divers who were still encapsulated back on the boat were told that a diver had been left on the ocean floor. Each capsule held a medic, or a diver who was also trained as a medic, and the medics were told to prepare, just in case they needed to be sent into the water. Everyone was scared because this was something that had never happened. The boat continued to drift away from Chris. All three computers that were designed to hold the boat in place weren't working. The first computer had failed, the backup had failed, and the master had failed. The captain decided to use the manual system. This is typically used only when in harbor, where there isn't much wind or waves. These consisted of four joysticks, but the problem was they were on two different consoles, so this meant two different men had to drive the boat simultaneously working together to make it stay in the right spot. They did the best they could to control the boat, but there was a learning curve, and it wasn't happening quickly enough. The boat was moving, zigzagging, and looping through the ocean, which meant the bell and the divers were being yanked around on the seafloor. Duncan sat inside the bell, thinking about how he was going to have to tell Morag that they had lost Chris. Time was passing too quickly. One minute became two, then five, then ten, and then more. One of the men on the ship decided to drop a submersible robot into the water. He drove it towards where Chris's location should be. The crew stood by watching, some of the crew stood by watching, to see if the submersible would help give Chris strength. Was he still alive? Maybe the submersible would tell Chris that they were coming and that they were doing all they could to help him. The crew on the boat could see through the camera that was on the submersible, but all they saw was darkness. Minutes passed. Nothing came up on the screen. They willed the submersible to find the structure. The wait was longer than they hoped, but suddenly it appeared. Now they had to find Chris. They hoped that he was on top of the structure, rather than on the side of it or below it. As they followed the lines of the structure upwards, they saw Chris's body. It appeared as though his hands were opening and closing. It almost looked like a wave, but many of the crew realized the movements were more seizure-like. Some of the crew feared they were watching Chris as he died. Others were given hope. They believed the twitching was a sign that he was still alive, and he was on top of the structure, which would make it much easier to save him. Twenty-two minutes had now passed since Chris's umbilical broke. There was very limited control of the vessel. The captain was doing his best to move it back into place, but precious time was wasting. Slowly but surely, Chris's twitching slowed, and then it stopped. The crew watched on as Chris's body went still. Dave sat below the bell, helpless, unable to do anything but wait for instructions. Duncan, 
who wasn't a religious man, began to pray as hard as he could for Chris. At no point did the men ever consider not going back for him. Dead or alive, Chris would come back with the boat. On the surface, the crew were trying everything they could think of to regain control of the boat. One of the last options was a hard reset of the computer system. Can you believe that? How many of us have had to shut down our computer and reset it just to get something to work? And something as simple as a little glitch could cost a man his life on these boats. There weren't any other options left, so they did it. They reset it, and they just waited. The time went by agonizingly. All they wanted was a break. Something had to work. Lucky for them, the system came back online. This was a massive relief for the captain and crew. As soon as the computers were up, they moved straight back towards Chris's location. It had now been 27 minutes and 45 seconds since Chris's umbilical broke. If we remember, he only had 5 to 10 minutes worth of oxygen in his backup tanks. Dave was getting anxious on the bell, asking over and over if they're near the structure. He wanted to get off the bell and get Chris's body. Craig, the supervisor, was counting down the distance to Chris's body. 50 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, and then Dave could see the lights of the submersible. Soon he could see Chris's body lit up by the submersible's lights. As soon as he was given the okay, he shot forward, racing towards Chris's body. Chris lay completely still. His mask was one-third of the way full of water. Dave wasn't surprised by what he saw. In his own words, there was a dead guy on top of the manifold. The crew watched as Dave dragged Chris back towards the bell. The submersible helped light the way and kept a camera on the men. The dead weight of Chris was very heavy and the boat was moving up and down, but Dave was determined to do his job. In the moment, Dave wasn't thinking of the man inside the dive suit as Chris. Instead, he was thinking of it as a dead body that he needed to bring home. It hurt too much to think of it as his friend Chris. Dave preferred to think of him as a thing that needed to be carried from one place to another as quickly as possible. He muscled Chris back to the bell. Thirty-six minutes and twenty-six seconds had passed since Chris's umbilical had been cut. Waiting impatiently inside the bell, Duncan tried not to think of Chris as dead. He hoped his friend would be alive. When Duncan pulled Chris into the bell and removed his mask... Chris's face was blue, his eyes were closed, and his body was cold to the touch. Duncan did what he was trained to do, and he gave Chris two deep breathfuls of air. Chris almost immediately began to sputter and choke. The man survived. He is alive and well today. Chris remembers hearing the sounds of his umbilical breaking, and then he shot backwards falling down off the manifold in slow motion. It was very disorienting as he fell because it was pitch black. He hit the bottom, landing on his back, but he righted himself. His only focus was trying to get to the top of the structure. He knew that would be the best place to be in order to be saved more quickly. He was panicking, though, because he had no idea where the structure was. He could have walked in any direction and gone the wrong way. 
he could have lost the structure completely, which would have made it impossible for him to have been found. However, he couldn't just stand there doing nothing. He had to make a decision. Luck was on his side, and the steps he took were in the right direction. He reached out tentatively in front of himself. In the dark, he slowly walked forward. He only took two steps before he bumped into the structure. Now he had to somehow climb about 11 meters or 33 feet up to get to the top of the structure. He did that in the pitch black, holding on as tightly as he could, fearing that if he let go, he might lose the structure again. As he reached the top, he looked for the lights of the bell, but he couldn't see anything. He felt completely alone. He knew he only had minutes left to breathe. He had used a couple minutes already, climbing the structure. Even if the diving bell had been in place, it would have taken all the oxygen he had just to reach the bell. He realized he was going to die. He feared losing his family. His thoughts were that he was sorry for the pain he was going to cause to all the people who loved him. He would later say that he never felt the cold. He knew that didn't make sense because the cold would have been overwhelming, but perhaps his adrenaline wouldn't let him feel the cold. I've heard before that some people don't feel pain until after the surge of adrenaline washes away, so maybe that's what happened in this case. The fact that Chris couldn't remember the cold makes him wonder how lucid he really was. At some point, he fell unconscious, but the overwhelming feeling that he could remember was sorrow. He knew that he was going to lose everything. He wasn't going to be able to see his home finished. He wasn't going to be able to see his wife on the day they had planned to get married. He asked the inevitable question, Why me? It was getting harder for him to breathe, harder for him to pull in the air that he desperately needed. He remembered knowing the end was near, and then nothing. His last breath was gone. Duncan's two breaths, forced into Chris's lungs, activated the need to breathe again. Chris gasped for air, and every gasp got stronger. Every breath got stronger. He realized that something was wrong, but he didn't know what. Then he was able to see flashing lights. When things finally came into focus, Chris saw Duncan, which was reassuring to him. He had seen Duncan as a father figure and felt relief and comfort that Duncan was there beside him. Chris also saw Dave, who looked exhausted, but he didn't understand why. Dave had begun to believe that Chris was dead, and as he sat inside the bell watching Chris come back to life, he was confused. He just couldn't believe that Chris was okay. Craig, the dive supervisor, radioed down, asking with disbelief if Chris was okay, and Chris was able to respond that he was. The men warmed Chris's body slowly with warm compresses and warm water. It took 30 to 40 minutes for the bell to return to the boat and the compression chambers. It wasn't until Dave was taking a shower later, trying to warm himself up and wash his hair, when he realized that his hands wouldn't open. They were cramped and closed tight. He had put so much physical effort into pulling Chris's body to the bell that now Dave's body was rebelling against him. It needed rest and healing, just as much as Chris's body needed them. Chris said everyone did their jobs that day. 
Dave and Duncan followed protocol, as did Chris. In an incredible chain of events, Chris survived, and not only that, he thrived. His core temperature had dropped to about 32 degrees Celsius, or about 89 degrees Fahrenheit, but with the right treatment, he was slowly warming up. He was kept awake for a long time, to make sure he wasn't going into shock. When it was finally time to rest, just before dozing off, he told one of the men that yes, he had been sad for a bit, but then he got kind of cold and numb, but it was really like falling asleep, and it wasn't that bad. Here was a man who was on death's doorstep, saying that in this situation, when he knew he was going to die, that death wasn't that bad. Thank goodness that he's here today to share his story of survival. He's not sure how he survived, and he doesn't think anyone will ever be able to explain it exactly. He believes that the cold temperature helped slow his heart rate and contracted his blood vessels. The oxygen that he had been breathing was super saturated, so it was almost like hyperventilating before holding your breath. The oxygen saturated his blood, tissues, and organs, which allowed him to hold on to vital oxygen he needed during those long, suffocating minutes. Chris and the other divers still needed to decompress. It would take four or five days for that process to be completed. Luckily, after just a day, Chris was back to normal. He had no serious repercussions from the oxygen deprivation. In fact, he was feeling so good, he wasn't sure whether he should tell Morag about the accident at all. He didn't want her to have to worry about him. He still needed to decompress for four more days. He thought he had plenty of time to come up with something to tell her if he told her at all. But he would be forced to tell her, because one of the dive supervisors called him, telling him that the story would be in the newspaper the next day. He better call Morag and let her know before she found out by reading it in the paper. When he made the dreaded phone call, he told the story as if it had happened to someone else. But she was no fool, and she figured out quickly that Chris had been the one in the most danger. When she thinks of Chris laying on the bottom of the ocean floor, it brings tears to her eyes. She was happy to hear Chris's voice, but after hearing the news, all she wanted was to be able to physically touch him. They were happily married a few months later, and at the wedding, after kissing his new bride, Chris was even able to joke with Duncan about the fact that Duncan was one of two people who gave him a good kiss on the lips. Chris wants the focus of the story to be on Dave and Duncan and the team who worked so hard to save him. He's extremely thankful for his second chance at life. He was so unaffected by his job, partly because he was young and wanted to make an impression at his work, and partly because he recovered so quickly. Three weeks later, he was diving again. If you enjoyed today's Twisted Travel story, you can learn more about it by watching a documentary called Last Breath. It's excellent. You can watch some of the actual footage from the day of the event. Some of the scenes are recreated to make it seem more intriguing and realistic. It's very well done. If you liked the podcast today, please subscribe to it and take a minute to give it a five-star rating and a nice review. I'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach me through social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or through Gmail. The address is Twisted Travel and True Crime, all written out, at gmail.com. There are links 
to my social media in the show description, and that's also where you can donate to the show. I would love your support. If you have case suggestions, um, true crime suggestions, or twisted travel suggestions, please, please shoot me a message somehow through the social media or Gmail and let me know. I'd, I'd love your ideas. Um, today, I'd especially like to thank Afrocaro07, who wrote Bingeworthy and gave me five stars. She said, I love traveling, or he, sorry, he or she, said, I love traveling. So the title attracted me to this podcast, and I'm so glad it did. The host covers interesting cases that haven't been covered in every other true crime podcast. Her voice is very soothing, and I love her side comments. LOL. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I also got a two-star rating from someone who said, Munez84, who says, Not a fan of the narrator. This didn't feel like a true crime podcast. The narrator read this like she was reading a book. The actual story might have been decent if read by somebody else. I can see how that might sound true. I do read from my notes quite a bit, and doing a podcast by yourself doesn't have that conversational feel that is always fun to have in um, in some podcasts. But I hope that most of you like what we're doing, and I hope that you come back and listen next week. Until then, I wish you all fair winds and following seas and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.